Welcome to University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick. Libraries and books are increasingly in the spotlight as organized challenges to certain content has exploded. The American Library Association reported that there were nearly 1,300 challenges to censor library books and resources in 2022, up from just 729 challenges the year before. More than 2,500 titles were targeted for censorship, and most objections were about content dealing with sex, LGBTQ issues, and race. Deirdre Caparoso is the Outreach and Community Engagement Librarian at the University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center and Informatics Center. She is also chair of the Intellectual Freedom Committee for the New Mexico Library Association. We began our discussion with a couple of definitions. A book ban is actually when an item is actually removed. So when in some way or another people no longer have access to it. It's either removed from libraries, it's removed from classrooms, it's removed from bookstore shelves, reading lists, when people actually cease to have access to an actual title. A book challenge is kind of the process that an organization might go through when a person or a group is attempting to remove or restrict materials. The majority of challenges are unsuccessful. But what they can do is temporarily remove items from libraries and classrooms, which can be formed as a temporary ban unto themselves. Also, what they do is they put a lot of pressure on libraries and schools to be more aware of what they provide the public. And sometimes that can long term lead to more restrictions Mm -hmm. on access to items. Talk about the landscape right now in terms of what we're seeing around challenges nationwide. Recently, the big thrust really is uh, the country is seeing really heavily increased attempts to restrict access to materials that are primarily written about LGBTQ youth and their experiences, titles written by authors that sometimes belong to multiple marginalized groups. I would say these efforts are 100% in complete lockstep with legislation you're seeing around the country to restrict the rights of LGBTQ individuals, um, rights-threatening health care identification, civil rights. I mean, just in in so many ways. And really, the book challenges and bans are complete and direct reflection of other things happening. I think kind of the big thing is, is that what you're seeing right now kind of going hand in hand with that, too, is attempts to use legislation Mm -hmm. as well as processes to, to restrict access basically. It's a really big, new, concerted way. I mean, it's not just like an amount. Mom is upset and she comes to the library and complains. You're saying this is a concerted, organized effort? I would say that a lot of local individuals throughout the country are being provided with the information needed to challenge things. I mean, you know, again, big groups like Moms for Liberty. They have been behind multiple book challenges throughout the country, and they are known with providing people with the resources and information needed to challenge books in communities. So is it usually public libraries and school libraries? Usually about Mm 50-50. I do know, according to the American Library Association's most recent report in 2022, was 51% schools, 48% public. And I saw that report. The challenges have gone up exponentially in the last few years. Yes, that's correct. Um, I believe it was maybe 273 challenges in 2020, and by 2022, it was over 2,500. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> That's a, it's, a, it's, it's a huge, huge, huge increase. What forms do these sort of actions take? 
I've chaired the committee, and we're a small committee now, for the past several years. And, you know, when I first started doing it, it was because, I'll be honest, nobody else was really interested in doing it. And it was sort of kind of a training job. It would be like, okay, it's like, you know, when people have questions about processes to put in place, I'm happy to answer their questions. I'm happy to lead, like, training sessions and talk to libraries about it at conferences and be like, this is what your collection development policy should look like. I was happy to work as that sort of trainer, and I'm still happy to do that. And that's originally kind of like what this job sort of was, was to help smaller libraries understand how to prepare for potential book bans and challenges. Thinking they would be rare Thinking they would be rare and far between, and it would be like more individuals that were just deeply concerned and wanted to start a conversation. And, And so really what we encourage libraries to put into place is, first off, a standard approved collection development policy. And what that really is for a library is a document that states how the library adds items to their collection and removes items from their collection and provides very set guidelines for doing so. And usually that document would have kind of like a standard issue sort of piece about intellectual freedom and a library collection working hard to make sure that all angles were represented. And honestly, a good collection development policy really does protect a library. I mean, it lets the public know why we purchase things, why we don't purchase things, and why when we receive donations. There are some donations that we might add to the collection and other donations that we might not add to the collection. I mean, really standard things, like if an item was printed, let's say, in the past two years and by a relatively well-known publisher, there's a good chance we might add it to the collection. If it's 20 years old, it's most likely outdated. Or if it's um, something that was individually published, Mm self-published, we probably won't add it to the collection so that when people come to us and they have donations, we can very clearly see, oh, yes, we want to do this with this item because it falls under this part of our policy. I mean, that's what a good collection development policy does. And historically, they protect libraries really, really well. You know, most libraries are encouraged to have some sort of a request for reconsideration form and process so that when somebody... What they really are doing is when they want to come to the library and, you know, let us know that they don't like something in our collection, it's their opportunity to have a discussion with us and ask us to reconsider whether or not that item belongs in our collection. I mean, you know, it's a pretty self-explanatory thing. I mean, basic form. It's like, please fill this out. Um, Usually there's some sort of review process. Those forms normally go straight to the library director. And that individual, with the assistance of maybe a few staff members, maybe some members of the community, will make a decision as to whether or not that item is appropriate for the community. And again, traditionally, these are great ways to have conversations with your community. I mean, it's fantastic that people do pay attention to what is happening in the library. And again, as I always say, as libraries don't always 100% get it right. I mean, especially larger libraries, their collections can be quite large. We buy a lot of items. We don't always 100% review line by line everything that comes into a building. It's impossible to do that. I mean, you might have one person buying hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of material on a yearly basis. So they do their best to be really careful, but they're working with information given to them by their publisher or by the book vendor and trying to make the right decision. And sometimes we don't always get the right information. And sometimes there is an item that'll be like, you know, this isn't right for us right now. Or it's like, we hear you. Maybe this should be in a different part of the library. Maybe it's maybe not appropriate for a 10-year-old, but fantastic for a 16-year-old. So we'll move it to that part of the library. Mm -hmm. 
so kind of that would be sort of like the traditional way of, of dealing with a book challenge, and that is treating it as a quality conversation with your community and, and looking into it and, um, and exploring options that the library might take. The tricky thing right now is, I mean, the library's obviously always had sort of like what I think of as like the silent challenges, which are books that are not returned to the library or moved to other parts of the library. They just sort of travel on their own and it makes it hard for people to find them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's not uncommon to find titles dealing with sensitive issues completely like wedged between some geology books or something like that. (laughs) I sort of think that's, you know, mm-hmm. pe- people sort of like their silent mm-hmm. protests, so to speak. The tricky thing that you see, and this is something that it, it's not 100% new, but it's just happening more, is individuals, and sometimes these are individuals that are active and familiar with other larger organizations in the country, that are more willing to take a public stance and maybe go to a member of the school board or the school principal or city council and... Before they've gone through a formal process at the library. It's 100%, Mm -hmm. yes. And really push and put pressure through outside organizations, you know, on on library administration. That's really what you're seeing a lot more of nowadays. So instead of, you know, like five years ago, I mean, you know, again, somebody might invite a conversation through the request for a reconsideration process. Now they're more likely to show up at city council with friends of theirs and make a very big public statement about some of the books in the library. And that is a much more complicated situation for a library to take because they don't have really the opportunity sometimes to even prepare for that. It's hard to just address a really loud, enraged uh, group of people. This is University Showcase. I'm Megan Kamrick, and I'm talking with Deirdre Caparoso, who is the Outreach and Community Engagement Librarian at the UNM Health Sciences Library and Informatics Center. She is also chair of the Intellectual Freedom Committee for the New Mexico Library Association. Recently, a challenge to certain books in the Rio Rancho Library came before the city council. Ultimately, the city council backed the library. However, the library did change its procedures regarding library cards. And I don't speak for Real Rancho, and I don't know the pressures that library system must have been under. And this is something that you're seeing in a lot of libraries around the country. And and let me be clear, this is something that the American Library Association um, has never supported under freedom to read. And that is restricted children's library cards in which parents can make the decision as to what their child can check out with their library card. So if you opt to get a children's library card for your student, that card will only be restricted to children's materials. Um, It's a newer thing. I've been working in public libraries now since 2008. Every library that I've worked in previously, you know, now I'm in an academic library and Mm -hmm. it's very different, but historically public libraries really, you get a card, you can check out anything in the library, end of story. Um, Public libraries do not act in local parentis in any possible way. Um, We're not a school library. Um, We don't make decisions for your child. We want parents to make decisions for their children, and we want parents to read along with their children. It is really their opportunity to discuss with the child what they think is appropriate at home and so forth. And if they always have the option to go to libraries um, with their child and, and select books with their child, I mean, we have never, ever I mean, and I'm speaking when I say we as public librarians, 
and I was a public librarian for many years, you know, have never interfered with that relation in any way. But now there are a lot of libraries providing parents with the opportunity to get these new children's cards, which are, again, restricted. What pressure does that put on the library? So I guess... Some would say, well, that is parental rights. I'm controlling, I'm deciding what my child reads. But really, it's on the library to then decide what is in that child's book category, right? And like if the kid brings a book up, I'm like, no, you can't take that. That's really, really tough. And, you know, and I'll be honest, I cannot say how each individual library is dealing with that because that's really hard for libraries. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is the number of processes that I would think have to go into place behind the scenes. You know, and I, I don't know, like, if libraries are choosing to, ca- to to flag that in their catalog, if they're requiring children now to automatically avoid self-check systems, because I think there are, there's a lot of work that goes into it. So first off, libraries have with, what's an ILS. An ILS is basically, it's an integrated library system. It's basically a catalog. Mm-hmm. And every library has a different ILS. Yes. I mean, there are really big vendors out there, such as, you know, Sierra. There's many different products libraries can buy. There are also open access products that small libraries might opt to use. On the East Coast, you'll see a lot of libraries kind of working in consortium in order to, to share the expense of an ILS system. You know, just the technical end of it, period, is really hard on libraries, and every ILS is very different. So it's like, and again, I'm talking about just a library being able to technically keep up with ensuring that people check out what they should be checking out. I mean, that's just insanely Mm. tough. And I don't know how libraries are really like figuring that out necessarily behind the scenes. Because a big thing too is, you know, I think I mentioned a little bit earlier, LGBTQ titles. Those are the hardest hit titles, period. Second to that are titles dealing with racism, race issues, DEI, Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes, Mm -hmm. correct. There are a lot of books written for kids about those topics because racism affects children. Queer children exist. So just saying my kid's only going to check out children's material does not necessarily mean that you're always going to like the children's books that your child brings home to. Really, it's impossibly hard for a library to really give the child precisely what you want them to be given. You mentioned when I saw your talk, Hide the Pride. Boy, that was, and it started actually last year. This is the second Mm. year from when I understand that Hide the Pride, as far as I know, has really sort of been a thing. And it kind of started out as a kind of a social media movement that was promoted by several large religious organizations to encourage people to and there were gosh there were several like videos on it last year and people were like on instagram posting pictures of the pride displays before and after hide the pride hit Mm. and really what they were doing is encouraging people to go to their library use their library cards check out everything on a pride display and keep them checked out as long as they possibly could, so that other people could not access those materials during Pride Month, which is June. I, I know that recently that Hide the Pride has actually gotten a lot more um, coverage. I remember last year seeing a lot of people on Instagram, they would post a picture of like, this is my library's Pride display before and after I hit, so to speak. And mm. it, it's 
it was just it's it's, it's just sad. Have you seen this happening I mean, in New Mexico? Have you heard anything? I have not heard of it happening mm-hmm. in New Mexico. That's not to say that it hasn't happened in the state of New Mexico. Really, first off, it's you know, from what I know, public libraries book displays are filled on a regular basis, so you're not going to be able to remove like every single book from a pride display. Pride displays also look different in a million different ways. I mean, they could be authors that identify as queer. They could be books um, specifically about queer people or queer issues. And there are an insane number of queer authors out there. I mean, uh, Margaret Wise Brown, who wrote Good Night Moon, was queer. I mean, are we going to remove all copies of Good Night Moon from public libraries? I mean, you know, little things like that that people just really aren't thinking about. Um, But what they are doing is just making statements that are hurtful to many people. They're performing a form of book banning. It might Mm -hmm. be a temporary form of book banning, but it is performative book banning and they're doing it. We've talked about Rio Rancho. There were several other re- somewhat recent. Los Alamos. Yeah, yeah. Los Alamos yeah. in the last, this year? Yes. Los what Alamos was there? like, I think like a week or two before Rio Rancho, actually. From what I understand in Los Alamos, uh, title, You're a Drag Queen and You Know It by Little Hot Mess. It was a children's picture book. It was challenged. Challenger at the time actually requested that that title specifically, as well as other LGBTQ books and things like political pride bookmarks, and those are their words, um, be removed from display in the children's area. The library board did conclude that the titles were selected under the library's policy. And again, this is an example of a collection development policy protecting a library, and the books were kept. And that, that particular title was kept maintained in the collection. Mm-hmm. So going back a ways, I think there was an, an earlier one in Rio Rancho. Yes, about a graphic novel. Yeah, the graphic novel. This was 2015, um, Palomar by Gilbert Hernandez. It was in the collection. This was a school library at Rio Rancho High School. Um, it got a fair number of press at the time. After review, the book did remain in the library collection. Kind of the trickier thing, though, the, was that it wasn't necessarily returned to the shelves, from what I understand. Um, and I and I don't know exactly the status where it ended up in the library, but it was not actually on library shelves, but it was available by request. And that's sort of too. The book might not have been banned, but access to it long term was restricted in some way, and that does happen a lot with libraries. And that particular title was it, it was challenged due to I think sexually related content. And mm-hmm. I don't know enough about the title to to really say what that content was, um, if it was LGBT or not. Are young people really going to go up and request a book? Exactly. Like that? That's the okay. big thing, yeah. is that people are not going to request the books. You know, if it's hard to get to something, people aren't going to ask for it, especially young people. I mean, and that's really the sad thing, is really what we're talking about today. It affects children. It affects teenagers. I believe strongly that children and teens have the right to access the information and materials that they want to access. They have the right to use reading as a form of exploration. Keeping certain books away from children is not going to ensure that they grow up believing the same things that you grew up. It's not going to ensure that your kiddo is not interested in race theory or is not interested in, you know, in queer rights. I mean, it it really just hurts the community as a whole. And also, these books provide a window into a broader world. 
Do you really want kids to live in a world without windows? I don't. Um, I think that's really a big thing, too, is like lots and lots of people read all sorts of books. Sometimes it changes the way they think. Sometimes it doesn't. But either way, you're giving them an opportunity. Every time you give someone a book, you're giving them the opportunity. And we're taking away opportunities when we take away books. You talked about another one when I saw you talk with the Mexico Press women, Nevermore by Neil Gaiman, one of my favorite books. Um, <laughs> Neverwhere, yeah. yeah Neverwhere, yeah. I'm sorry. Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman was banned in from English classrooms in Alamogordo. It Why? Was, it was actually not banned. Um, okay. It was temporarily oh, okay. removed right. from English classrooms. My yes, God. in Alamogordo. A parent complained about the sexual content in the book. I don't know if that went to, I can't remember if it was about their board member or the principal. The books were removed from the classroom. Um, not from the libraries. They were removed from classrooms until they were re- until the title was reviewed. The books did return to the classroom, but again, an example of making it harder for someone to, at least for a certain period of time, access a specific title. Another thing, too, is that when those sorts of things happen, I always wonder, what, what's kind of, what are the behind-the-scenes consequences of that? How many English teachers are going to be afraid to put something even new-ish mm-hmm. on reading lists when something like that happens. I mean, it, it's really hard. We can quantify book challenges and and book bans that happen publicly, but we can't quantify all the stuff that happens behind the scenes. And we can't quantify the fear that a lot of organizations feel after something like that. This is University Showcase on KUNM, and I'm Megan Kamrick. I'm speaking with Deirdre Caparoso, who is the Outreach and Community Engagement Librarian at the UNM Health Sciences Library and Informatics Center. She's also chair of the Intellectual Freedom Committee for the New Mexico Library Association, and she's been tracking the explosion of book bans and challenges around the country and in New Mexico. Could you talk about how we fund libraries in New Mexico? Funding is tricky, and I'm not an expert on library funding because funding is so hard. I mean, it's it's hard everywhere. Um, I think one of the big things in the state of New Mexico, though, is first off, we're not a state with a lot of money. Public libraries, a lot of them are really small. They've got to fight for every dime they get. A big funder of state libraries are state go bonds. General, General obligation bonds. bonds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The tricky things about those is pretty much, I used to work in the state of Colorado, and mill levy is passed, you're guaranteed that mill levy 10, 15 years, sometimes longer, sometimes slightly less. Either way, it's enough time for the library to have access to funds and actually make quality improvements if need be. So you're giving a library really time to do something with funds. In the state of New Mexico, the bond cycle is tricky. Pretty much libraries are looking at, in some way or another, putting themselves up to voters every other year almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much every other year, the library might worry about whether or not bonds are going to pass. I, as far as I know, I don't think library bonds in the state of New Mexico have ever failed. But I do really believe the fact that that happens so often really does impact how libraries actually operate. It also makes it really hard for libraries to plan long term. And I know that's a common way of funding things in the state. And again, we're not a state with a lot of money, but it does make things really tough on libraries. And when you're constantly asking voters to vote for something in some way or another, you're going to think very hard about everything that you do and, you know, things that you add to the collection, the programs that you offer. Again, when your bond is up, people might be like, oh, you're the library. You're the people that have X, Y, and Z. We don't like you. Well, it strikes me the people who have taken on these challenges are the most vocal. Uh, Rio Rancho is an interesting example because the community and the council came out 
to support the library ultimately. Yes, big time. Yeah. So that was very interesting. So, but I don't know how often those supporters go regularly to the library. I'm like, I'm really glad you have X, Y, and Z book or you have this display. or And that's a big thing, again, is that people don't hear when they're doing great stuff. Libraries don't hear that as often as they should. One of the things that comes up over and over again is people want to know, how can I support my library? And the way you can support your library is let them know that, that the library is doing a great job, that you like the books that they're getting in that you like their displays, that you like their programs, and that not only are you just like walking into the library and stating those things, because it's great for staff to hear when they're helping you check out or, you know, or helping you find a title. Everybody loves hearing that. But it's really important that you send emails to your city council member, mm. that if you, if your kids are in school, that you let the school board know, hey, my kid's school library is doing a fantastic job, that you let library directors know that you like what their library is doing. And like I always tell people too, is if you can, send that via email mm-hmm. or, or send a letter or, or do something that, that can be recorded, that can be you know made public possibly. So I guess the big question, why does this matter? Because we can get so many things online, so many things from Amazon, other libraries. Who's being hurt by this and why, what is at stake here? Everyone, I think, is being hurt by this, first Mm -hmm. off, ultimately. Books are for everybody, and everyone should have the right to easily read books that they want to read. But there are a couple of key things. Like, first off, like as I mentioned earlier, an incredible number of the books that are on the most challenged list were written by marginalized authors. I think just right there that that says quite a lot about what people think or how people feel and their willingness to go out there and tell some voices that we don't want you. But ultimately, the kids are really hurt because so many people don't have access to books still. I mean, I think it's really easy for people to say, you know, in today's world, you can access books everywhere. But you can just pick up free books anywhere in multiple places nowadays. But not everyone, first off, is going to go places where you can have access in that way. Mm-hmm. Books cost money. I mean, that's a huge thing is books are expensive. Inflation is running wild. People don't have extra money to spend on books. Another thing, too, is transportation is really hard. Let's be frank. I mean, the state of New Mexico does not have great mass transit, period. We're a very rural place. I mean, some people have to travel 20 miles to go to a library, sometimes more, sometimes less. It's great if you're in the city, but just be, we're a big, sprawling city without great mass transit. You might not be able to get on the bus and travel for two hours just to get to a library. The people that need books are still impacted by book bans and challenges. So stating that you're just doing this for your kids or you're doing this for the general public is not all that helpful when there are a lot of people out there that really can only access materials through your library. Another big thing is that, and this kind of, this doesn't necessarily apply to necessarily the state of New Mexico, but small like classroom libraries, because so much legislation in this country is directed towards teachers. It's directed towards public classrooms. Public classrooms have sort of been sort of like for a lot of kids in high needs communities, their easiest way to access books because, you know, lots of librarians or excuse me, not just librarians, teachers will have like a nice little school library in the corner. I mean, I know when I was growing up, almost every single classroom had some sort of like mini library. It might be one shelf. It might be a whole bookcase. But either way, you could go and, you know, borrow a book from your teacher and take it home and hopefully return it. But 
I'll be honest, I think I've borrowed books once or twice from a teacher and not returned it and never had anything happen. <laughs> um, but either way, you could do that. New legislation is making that so much harder. So what do you do if your kids are going to school? That's where they can get books. And the schools don't have books that are easy to grab. Again, you're really impacting people that live in marginalized communities. And unfortunately, a lot of these children, once they get used to maybe not having easy access to books, they might not grow up and become the readers we want them to be. They also might not, and this is kind of scary, grow up and be the library supporters we would like them to be if they did not experience positive. They didn't have positive experiences Mm -hmm. in public libraries. By making it harder for public libraries to do their jobs, by making it harder for schools to do their jobs, by making books less accessible, period, I think we're potentially damaging our future long term. Deirdre Caparoso, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was Deirdre Caparoso, Outreach and Community Engagement Librarian at the UNM Health Sciences Library and Informatics Center and Chair of the Intellectual Freedom Committee for the New Mexico Library Association. You can find this episode and all our episodes online at KUNM.org. Thanks to Associate Professor David Bashwinner for our theme music. I'm Megan Kamrick. Thank you for listening to University Showcase and supporting KUNM.